Let's pray together. Lord, we come as a thankful people. We're so thankful, Lord, that you are not a God who sits and waits for us to attain to a certain level of strength before you will use us as your instruments, but Lord, you use weak and frail instruments, working your strength and your power through us as believers in the kingdom to accomplish the purposes that you have on earth and in heaven. Thank you, Lord God, that you are the God who supplies us with strength, who supplies us with every resource we need as we journey through our days on this earth. And Lord God, we pray this morning, your, your word is a bright lamp. It is a shining light. Your word itself does not need illumination, but our hearts and minds do. And so we pray that you would come and illuminate our hearts and minds as we open your word again. Teach us, Holy Spirit, and not only teach us, Lord, but ingrain these things in us so that we would then be doers of your word as we leave this place later today. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Back in 1996, I worked the strangest, the weirdest summer job that probably I ever worked at a chemical salvage company. One of the many, um, shall we say, interesting tasks uh, that I had at that place was to bulk together inorganic acids into a massive tank. So the acids would come in these great big huge drums and we would bulk them together into this, I don't know how many liters it was, thousands of liters, this tank. Whether that acid in question was uh, sulfuric acid or phosphoric acid or whatever it was. So I'd show up to work wearing uh, my steel-toed boots and I'd go to the locker room and I'd put on uh, the coveralls that they supplied and then depending on the work that I had to do on that particular day, I would grab a gas mask and make sure to select the specific mask cartridges that I needed for the job that I was doing that day. Well, I was very glad to have that mask on with the proper cartridges as I bulked together those very potent acids. I remember one day as I was working away there over top of one of those barrels of acid, uh, the mask shifted just slightly on my face, allowing air to come in just for a very brief second. And the raw burning sensation that I experienced in my nose just about, seriously, just about knocked me off my feet. I was very glad that those masks were provided and that I was able to wear the necessary protection. And April, this was early in our marriage, she was very glad to see me come home safely every day <laughs> from this job. Well, friends, this morning our final sermon is on this Divine Warrior Fighting for His People series. Our final sermon, we are continuing in Ephesians chapter 6. We are considering a passage this morning that is all about special equipment. Equipment, protection that is afforded to us as we, the Church of Jesus Christ, battle against the adversary of our souls. And in order for us to be protected against the acids of Satan, 
it will be necessary for us to wear the proper equipment. Now, last Sunday, we heard Paul, if you were with us last Sunday, we heard him repeat the command to stand. We heard that a few times in verses 10 through 13 of this chapter. Our passage this morning begins in the very same way. Stand, therefore. Hold your position, soldier. Resist. The idea of standing is then a very important idea in this whole passage. And the assumption behind this, listen, is that we will come under attack. And when we do, church, we are to stand like an oak tree in the midst of the onslaught. Are you with me so far? But in order to stand, we must be wearing the gas mask with the proper cartridge, so to speak. We have to be wearing the suitable equipment if we are to successfully stand. Paul says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. This is the first of six pieces of equipment, armor, that Paul describes in this passage, the belt of truth. Now, I mentioned just a moment ago, when I would show up for that weird chemical job that I had, I would put on the equipment that was provided to us as employees by the company. Well, guess what? The belt of truth is provided to us by our boss by God himself. Watch this. In the Greek version of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, the Messiah, Jesus, is described there as having truth as the belt of his loins. The Messiah wears a belt of truth in Isaiah chapter 11. And if we are believers in the Messiah Jesus, if we are in vital union with him, his belt in Isaiah 11 is our belt in Ephesians 6. Yes? He gives us his own belt of truth. God provides his servants with his own armor. Now, as Paul writes Ephesians 6, he is clearly thinking of, he is alluding to the prophet Isaiah. But at the same time, Paul is a prisoner. Paul is a prisoner at this moment who sees Roman guards and he sees Roman military types walking around him on a daily basis. Paul knows about the Roman soldier's belt. The Roman soldier's belt was a tough leather belt that went around the waist in the center of the body. It extended down toward the thighs to protect the thighs. And one of its primary functions, this belt, was to cinch up loose clothing so that the clothing wouldn't get in the way in a combat situation. When Paul talks here about believers Fastening on the belt of truth, he's talking about the very center of us, of who we are, being protected, tightly protected in truth and by the truth. 
If we would stand, my Christian friends, and resist against the assaults, against the darts, against the attacks of the devil, we must be immersed in, listen carefully, saturated by the objective truth that God gives us in his word, and we must be doers of that word, living out the truth. The idea here with fastening on the belt of truth is that we know the objective word of God, the word of truth that God has breathed out for us in the Bible, that we believe it, that we trust it, that we love it, that we study it, that we digest it, and that that truth then has an outworking in our lives. We're living it out courageously. Martin Lloyd-Jones used the language of the truth of God, I love this, getting hold of us and governing us. The truth of God getting hold of us and governing us. God's word is truth. John 17, 17. Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6. And we must walk in the truth. 3 John 1, Three and four. In this way, we stand against the schemes and the darts of the enemy, the belt of truth. But then Paul goes on to describe the second piece of the whole armor of God in verse 14. He says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And once again, my friends, the breastplate of righteousness is a piece of God's own impenetrable armor. He provides this indispensable piece to his children. As God went out to war against wickedness and as he gave deliverance in Isaiah 59, he put on righteousness like a breastplate, Isaiah 59, verse 17. So the breastplate of righteousness is God's armor, we need to note. It is God's armor from Isaiah 59 that we must now use. And just notice carefully here in, in Ephesians 6, 14, those words, put on having put on the breastplate. If you go to a, a museum of ancient artifacts, you might see an ancient breastplate sitting there in a display case. That ancient breastplate just sits there under the glass, totally stationary. It's there to be looked at. It's there to be admired. But no one may touch it or move it. Well, in our verse, the breastplate is definitely to be picked up and to be used. Yes? It is to be put on and put to use in our fight. Don't let it sit there. Use it. A Roman soldier in combat during Paul's day put on a front and back protective piece that went from his neck all the way down below his navel. The breastplate covered a lot of territory. In the, in the original Greek of this verse, the word that we translate as breastplate is the Greek word thorax. 
this thorax, this breastplate, covered a soldier's thorax, but it also covered his abdomen. It protected the vital organs, like the heart and like the lungs and the abdominal cavity. And of course, in ancient thought, it was believed that vital organs like heart and stomach and bowels were the seat of one's affections, of one's desires, the will, the conscience. So that Paul is talking about a breastplate, God's breastplate, Isaiah 59, that protects our affections, protects our will, protects our desires, protects our conscience from the barrage of Satan's attacks. It is the breastplate, friends, of righteousness. And the question naturally arises at this point, what sort of righteousness is in play in this verse? Is Paul talking about the legal, imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us, that righteousness that was alien to us, that is accounted to us when we believe. In other words, is the righteousness in Ephesians 6.14, is it that righteousness that is Christ's, his perfect law-keeping that he clothes us with as believers? Is it that? Or... Is this righteousness the believer's own ethical integrity of character? Is the righteousness of Ephesians 6.14 our living uprightly with a good conscience in the power of the Holy Spirit? The basic question again is, is the protective breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians 6.14 Christ's objective righteousness that is accounted to the believer, or is it the believer's subjective acts of righteousness? And I think the answer to that question is yes. I think it is both and. I think that argument can certainly be made However, I do think that the answer may tilt decidedly toward the alien righteousness category. The category of Christ's own righteousness that is accounted to the believer. Remember that the breastplate of righteousness in Isaiah 59 was God's own armor. He gives it to us for our battle against the devil. And Christ accounts to us, gives to us, his own righteousness. Friends, we need, and I hope you're with me on this, we need his righteousness, first and foremost. If we are to survive the onslaught of the enemy. So as an example, when the devil barrages us, and he will, when he barrages us with his darts of accusation, suggesting to us that we are irredeemably guilty, 
worthless, and even repulsive to God. It is Christ's righteousness upon us, the breastplate of righteousness that we use as our protective defense. Yes? No, the devil is wrong. Yes, I confess that I sinned, but I have confessed it to God, and he is faithful and just to forgive me when I sin, and he has clothed me in his righteousness, which I take by faith. God looks upon me, and he sees not the filthy rags of my own righteousness, but rather God sees the righteousness of his dear Son, which clothes me from head to foot. I stand accepted before God, though the devil would try to condemn me. The breastplate of righteousness. Soldier of Jesus Christ, put it on with the belt of truth also fastened about the very center of who you are. And then the third piece of the armor of God comes in verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, they'd need to be size 14 in my case, having put on the readiness by the gospel, given by the gospel of peace. The belt, the breastplate, and now the shoes. Did you know that feet are very important in combat? With feet, you are mobile. You walk, you run, you pivot, you stand, you grip onto the surface that you are standing on. You need to have the proper footwear on the battlefield. The Roman soldier of Paul's day wore protective leather footwear that had a series of hobnails on the underside of the sole, sort of like athletic cleats that we would wear today that allow a person to grip on to the playing surface and provide stability. The leather combat footwear prevented the soldier, listen, from slipping and from sliding around in battle. And we notice in our verse, don't we, that the concept of readiness, being prepared is associated with this foot, footwear, having put on the readiness. When we wear the footwear of the gospel of peace, it allows us to stand firm. Yes, to stand at the ready. In the midst of the devil's fierce attacks, it allows us to dig in with our cleats. We must know what the gospel of peace is. We must understand as believers, we must understand the contours and the limits of this good news that Christ by his cross has bought and brought peace between God and human beings and peace between the peoples of the earth. The gospel of Peace, and we must appropriate the gospel. Friends, digest the gospel, absorb the gospel, the good news, incorporate the gospel into us so that if someone were to come along and cut us, 
We would bleed gospel. In this way, we stand firm. And sadly, there are so many evangelical Christians today who are shifting, sliding, losing their footing, compromising, and making grievous concessions under the pressure of the culture. Many have lost their footing. And so my friend, I'm with you today. Do you know what the gospel actually is? Can you define it in a concise and thoroughly biblical way? And have you absorbed the gospel so that now it is dictating your living, your walking, your talking, your thinking, your being? Are you standing, dug in to the gospel, standing in the footwear? Are your feet planted securely in gospel soil? Spirit, may you examine our hearts this morning. We move forward to verse 16, where the fourth piece of armor is described. Listen, how many circumstances at the beginning of this verse? Isn't there one circumstance we can maybe? No, all circumstances, in all circumstances, do what? Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So the Roman soldier wore his leather belt, he wore his breastplate, he wore his combat shoes, and he also carried a large shield. Typical shield for a Roman soldier was four feet long and about two and a half feet wide. It was made of wood and leather was stretched over that wood with metal reinforcements on top and bottom. The shield's leather covering could be soaked in water in order to hinder and to extinguish the flame-tipped arrows, the flaming darts that the opponent would shoot. And soldiers would often advance side by side. Picture it in your mind's eye. Soldiers advancing side by side with a whole row of these shields overlapped, providing significant protection for the entire group. Sometimes they'd have them up top as well so that it was like a tank moving forward, protected. Paul borrows that image from the Roman military and he brings it over to the church. To you and I, you and I are to take up the shield of faith, the shield of faith in all circumstances. Now let's talk about this word faith here just for a moment. There are two sides to the coin of faith, so to speak. The first side has to do with our own trust. The first side of faith has to do with our reliance, our belief, our trust. We could summarize it like this by saying that faith in this first side of the coin, faith is that we believe. Faith is that we 
believe. But faith is also what we believe. And this is the second side of the coin of faith. Again, the first side is the that we believe, but the second side of the same coin is what we believe. The shield of faith is a shield that takes God as its object, yes? This is about faith in God, faith in his power, belief in his promises, confidence in his word, dependence on his son, faith in Jesus Christ, what we believe. It's not just faith by itself, vaguely, it's faith with content, faith with an object, faith in Jesus, the divine warrior, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, our master, our savior, our Lord, faith in him. In all circumstances, says Paul, pick a circumstance. It doesn't matter what it might be. You are commanded, believer, that's not too strong a word, commanded to take up the shield of faith in God, the shield of faith in Christ. When this shield of faith in the God of the Bible who has revealed himself fully in Jesus Christ, when this is put on, says Paul, what happens? You will be able to do what? To extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Over the past two Sundays, we've talked at some length on the devil's schemes. We've named what many of those are. And here they're called flaming darts. Again, in the arena of combat for Roman soldiers, a common weapon in that day was an arrow whose tip was dipped into an oily substance and then set ablaze and fired at the opponent. Flaming darts. These darts would come swiftly, without warning. They would come often in great quantity with an element, a definite element of surprise. So suddenly, you'd have a whole host of these flaming darts bearing down on you, striking you. My friend, you can be having a the, you know, sweet hour of prayer, right? be having a sweet time in prayer when suddenly a vicious thought pre presents itself, a flaming dart. You can feel strong and you can feel at peace when suddenly an overwhelming temptation comes, a flaming dart or fear and anxiety and despair can suddenly show up just as you are enjoying your lunch. Or a sense of oppression, a sense of great discouragement. And I speak from personal experience, even this past week, early in the, in the week, I had a sense of just overwhelming discouragement. And a brother texted me 
to say, hey, I'm praying for you. And the darkness began to lift. Flaming dart. Or a doubt, a worry, can suddenly be inflamed, can be really distorted for you. An accusation can come flying into your mind suddenly hard and heavy. Flaming darts. My friend, in all circumstances, says Paul, and I hope you underline those words, all circumstances, you must bear the shield of faith in all circumstances. Trust in God. Be confident in his promises. Depend on his power. Rehearse his greatness and his faithfulness. Speak it out loud. Preach to yourself the glory of God and preach it to your fellow soldiers. Believe his word. Stand firm and resist and fight in the strength of his might. And when you sense a victory in your skirmish, rejoice in that, but don't put down your shield. Don't ever put it down. Take it up in all circumstances, even when you feel at relative peace. But friends in Jesus, we're not fully suited up just yet. In verse 17, we have our fifth and sixth pieces of the whole armor of God. Paul says, take the helmet of salvation. What's a helmet for? It's for your head. Don't let the enemy get at your head or at your mind. Did you know that the enemy targets human minds? Did you know that? In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the devil is said to blind the minds of unbelievers. The devil blinds the minds of unbelievers. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul warns of the possibility that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, so he aims to lead our thoughts away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He seeks to lead our thoughts away from a pure and sincere devotion, pure devotion to Christ. This is why the apostle also commands us in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to take how many thoughts captive to Christ? Every thought, every thought captive to Christ. The devil campaigns against our minds. He, camp he campaigns to gain control of our minds. We need a strong helmet to withstand his attacks. And God gives us his own helmet, blessed be the Lord, that he wore in Isaiah 59, 17, when he waged war on wickedness. Isaiah 59, 17 has God with a helmet of salvation on his head. And now Paul commands us to wear that same piece here in Ephesians 6, 17. This is God's helmet, which is his salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is God rescuing us by his beloved son 
from the domain of darkness, transferring us into the kingdom of light. Salvation is God delivering us from sin, death, and the devil. Salvation is God rescuing us from his own wrath. Salvation is God winning our deliverance by the cross and the resurrection, routing and defeating the enemy. Salvation is the battle won by Almighty God in Jesus Christ. The battle has been won. And salvation is past, it is present, and it is future. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved in finality. This salvation, this rescue, this deliverance, this forgiveness that God has brought about for his children is our confidence. It is our helmet. It is our protection. It is our strong assurance, even as Satan is buffeting us and barraging our minds with his best flaming darts. And so, my friend, receive the helmet, take up the helmet, wear the helmet, yes? When the devil comes, as he will, with his temptations and his accusations and his allurements and his ugly despair at other times, when he comes, what do you do? You turn to your commander. <laughs> the risen Jesus Christ, conquering king, and you rejoice with him that he has already won the battle decisively at the cross and at the empty tomb. He has saved you, brother, sister. Stand your ground by praising our Lord for the rescue that he has given, that he is giving, and that he will give. Salvation. And as you pray with God's helmet on, might I suggest that you can use David's words in the first three verses of Psalm 35. These are great battle verses. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. The helmet of salvation. And then the sixth and final piece of the armor here in verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The Greek word that is translated sword here describes a double-edged sword that was about 12 to 24 inches in length. The word describes the same sort of sword or extended dagger, really is what it was, that Peter used when he cut off the ear of Malchus in Matthew 26. This is a weapon for when you go on the offense for sure, but it's also very useful in defending yourself. Offense and defense, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In Hebrews 4.12, we remember, the word of God is described in like terms. It is described there as being sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. 
The word of God is a sharp-edged sword. There is nothing dull about it. With this sword, we can go forward into the world on the attack, bearing the good news of the gospel, bringing this razor-sharp word to the lost and to the disturbed, proclaiming the living and active word as an act of aggression against the kingdom of darkness. But as Borgman and Ventura point out, the word of God is also a razor-sharp defensive weapon with which we beat back Satan when he attacks us with temptation and when he attacks us with accusation and the like. And so here I ask you a very practical question to each and every one of us, myself included. Review your past seven days, just for a moment. Look back on your, on your week. How was your swordsmanship over those seven days? How was your swordsmanship? Did you take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and did you wield it either offensively or defensively, or both? to the praise of God's glory. I exhort you in the Lord. We are now upon a new week. Pick up the sword of the Spirit and use it. Have confidence in this piece of armor. It is given to you by God himself. And notice carefully, friends, blessed truth, notice that it is the sword of the Spirit. That is... The word of God is that sword that has come from the very mouth of the Spirit of God, breathed out by the Spirit, and thus we know that this word is potent. Yes, it is powerful. It is mighty. Don't ever underestimate the power of God's word as a weapon in our fight against the principalities and powers. May you be confident in the word, and may you use it very skillfully. And so, my friends, God gives us the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the gospel footwear and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. What we have here is nothing less than a call to arms. We're in a war. The Christian life is indeed a battle that we wage in his strength with the mighty armor that he supplies. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. O church, arise and put your armor on. Please don't miss where Paul goes finally in our passage, in our final verse this morning, verse 18. Praying. 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 At how many times? <laughs> At all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert, soldier with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Notice, won't you, the repetition of prayer terms in this verse. Praying, all prayer and supplication, supplication 
for all the saints. And notice the repetition also of the word all. Praying at all times with all prayer, all perseverance, all the saints. There is an urgency in this verse concerning all sorts of prayer for, at all times for all the church. Now, as John Stott once observed, I think it's a good observation, most of us could probably say that we pray sometimes in the Spirit with some prayer and supplication, with some perseverance for some, but not all, the saints. Well, what if we were to obey the verse, though, and replace our sum with the all of this verse, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. As Stott says, this revolutionizes our praying. Friends, the way we take up and the way we put on and wield and fight with the belt and breastplate and the shoes and the shield and the helmet and the sword is by this all times, always, all the saints prayer. To quote Joel Bika here, prayer is critical because every piece of Christian armor is useless without it. Prayer is like oil. Just as every part of a combustion engine is useless without oil, so every part of Christian warfare is vain without prayer. We put on the armor by prayer. And the armor is made definedly effective in the oil of prayer. As John Piper once said, prayer is the communication by which the weapons of warfare are deployed according to the will of God. Prayer is for war. Pray in the Spirit, Paul says. That is, pray prayers that are guided by the Spirit, that are in keeping with the priorities of the Spirit, the purposes of the Spirit, in communion with the Spirit who indwells you, Christian. You and I are always to pray and not lose heart, right? Luke 18, 1. We are not to be anxious about anything. Are you anxious today? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, 6. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 7. Pray without ceasing. Without prayer, we will surely fail to stand in our battle against the powers of darkness. And so my prayer for each and every one of us as this sermon series now draws to a close is that we would be doers of the word in the power and in the strength of the spirit of God that we would know the power of our God in the battle that we would understand the tactics of our enemy and that we would understand and grasp our own weakness are you weak? put your hand up I want to see every hand up. <laughs> that we would obey the Lord by taking up the armor that he supplies to take our stand on the battlefield. And may we rejoice because the triumphant D-Day that is our Lord's cross and resurrection, it has already secured for us the victory. He is coming again to wrap up the war, and he has given us all we need for our battles in the meantime. So be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his great might, know that he will never ever leave you or forsake you. The captain is by your side. In the name of the Father and of the Spirit and the Son, amen. Let's pray together. Father, your work in us, your work in this world is not yet finished. And we stand in that time between the resurrection and the second coming, your soldiers on the ground, given all we need from you to wage the war, to fight the battles. Lord God, may each and every saint here this morning be strengthened in you for this week to go out into the world and trust you in all things, obey you in all things, depend on you in all things for your glory. Amen.